1: None of what we are doing is, I think, unprecedented. You're certainly hearing an unprecedented amount of complaining by the former president and his enablers because they don't like what we're finding.
2: I've pointed to three decisions over the course of 20 years that shows this slow death of the Voting Rights Act. And this Alabama case has to be read in that context.
0: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law and the courts and the Supreme Court and the rule of law. I am Dahlia Lithwick, and it's been a pretty weird few weeks in Washington, D.C. and at the Supreme Court. The GOP is grappling with the fallout from the RNC's decision to characterize the events of January 6, 2021 as, quote, legitimate political discourse as the January 6th committee pursues the truth of what that event really did represent. Two stories increasingly tough to reconcile. We are awaiting President Joe Biden's nominee for a Supreme Court seat, soon to be vacated by Justice Stephen Breyer. But in the meantime, we got an order on Monday evening halting a major racial redistricting decision under the Voting Rights Act in Alabama. That order happened on the shadow docket, and rather than explain the reasoning behind it, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, in a concurrence that was signed only by Justice Samuel Alito, used that concurrence to, you know, attack the dissenters. Later on in this show, we're going to talk to voting rights expert guru, consummate explainer Frenita Tolson about what, if anything, remains of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and to help us parse what it means when Chief Justice John Roberts, who has certainly dedicated his career to constricting the VRA, sides with the court's liberals to protect it. And after that, our Slate Plus members will get to listen in on my conversation with Slate's own Mark Joseph Stern, talking a little bit more about that voting rights decision, about the shadow docket, and about Madison Cawthorn, everybody's favorite insurrectionist adjacent representative. If you are not a Slate Plus member, you can always find more details and sign up at slate.com slash amicus. And that will entitle you to listen to all of your favorite Slate podcasts ad-free, and you'll get access to bonus segments or episodes of our show Amicus, Slow Burn, Political Gabfest, Culture Gab Fest, The Waves, all sorts of good things. And I just want to pause to say, as I do not do often enough, this show would not be possible without your support. Slate Plus helps keep amicus going and all the journalism we do at Slate. So thank you. That is slate.com slash amicus plus. Thanks for your support. So before we get to any of the many things that I have now promised you, we wanted to think a little bit about the law of January 6, 2021. As the Republican Party increasingly opts to characterize that day as something between, I I don't know, a meander through the Capitol gift shop, a political parade through Washington, D.C., one man remains very focused on unearthing the real story and putting it in its correct context, Congressman Adam Schiff represents California's 28th Congressional District. He's in his 11th term in the House of Representatives, and he serves as chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. He was the lead impeachment manager in the first impeachment of Donald Trump, and he currently serves on the January 6th Select Committee. Representative Schiff's book, Midnight in Washington, details both his own struggles against a lawless President Trump and also the surrender of members of government to a false narrative about fundamentally anti-democratic political forces. So, Representative Schiff, welcome to Amicus. It's an honor to have you. Thank you. It's
1: great to be back with you.
0: And I I want to start... if I may, with this rhetoric around these three words, legitimate political discourse, because it looks more and more like the choice of those three words was kind of an unforced error by the GOP. It was a choice to take some hard to discern step beyond what could be tolerated in political discourse. And we're seeing this week a real backlash from former Vice President Mike Pence, from Mitch McConnell...
1: Well, let me give you my view of what happened January the 6th, and we're all, we're here. We're here. We we saw what happened. It was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimately certified election from one
2: administration to the next. That's what it was.
0: So I guess my initial framing question is this, Congressman, the growing sense that you can say a whole lot of things about January 6. You can call them peaceful protesters, you can call them unjustly incarcerated freedom fighters, but you cannot call this legitimate political protest. And I I guess I'm really curious what it is about that language that somehow is splitting the the GOP into those who feel that they must condemn the violence and those who are going to just keep denying it.
1: Well, I think it really goes to the RNC's degree of reliance on the former president uh, for their funding, for their future. They feel they've made their bed with Donald Trump. They need to continue making their bed with Donald Trump. Donald Trump insists that they call that violent uh, insurrection, that violent attempt to overthrow the peaceful transfer of power, legitimate political discourse. uh, In Donald Trump's warped view of events. The insurrection was the election, uh, and what happened afterwards was somehow legitimate. Uh, And so the RNC reflects that. They know where their bread is buttered, and it is buttered by Donald Trump. But there are other voices in the GOP uh, who understand, even if they're not willing to speak it out loud, what a disaster the former president is for their party, and what destruction the big lie about the election, and therefore the big lie about the insurrection, is causing the country. If you persuade people as they're trying to do that we can't rely on our elections to settle our differences, then what's left but violence? Uh, And so I think you're seeing that tension played out. It is, you know, a bit encouraging. I I say only a bit. Tragically, the GOP continues to reach new lows. But it's a bit encouraging that at least some GOP members, mostly people who are not in office, but some who are in office, are speaking out against the censure of Cheney and Kinzinger for upholding the truth and their oath of office. So I think that's encouraging.
0: Can I ask you perhaps a slightly darker take on the same question, which is there's a a worrying iteration of this language, which is just that the monster's out of the box, (laughs) that what Mitch McConnell, Mike Pence, as you said, you know, Ben Sass, folks who are not in the party are beginning to recognize is that the sort of snowballing monster of the big lie of election suppression, of uh, denial of actual violence is now so vast that it cannot be contained by any existing institution or person. And that's why at this moment we're getting an inflection Point where folks are saying, no, 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 not, not this. In other words, I guess the dark version is, does the problem here transcend any person in leadership now?
1: You know, it's a very good question. And I've asked a similar question or made a similar observation on the pandemic and vaccines. The Republican Party created this monster in Donald Trump. And then Donald Trump created his own monster that in part, not even Donald Trump can control anymore. When Trump is out there now because he decides it's politically advantageous for him to take credit for the vaccine, in part apparently because it's part of a broader pissing match with Ron DeSantis. But for whatever reason, when he's out now on the stump and says people should get vaccinated, he gets booed by his own people. Donald Trump booed by his own base. That monster, he can't even control now. And I think there is a sense with respect to this big lie that they have pushed this, this snowball down the hill and it has gathered so much momentum that it, it is taking on an irresistible force of its own. And what has been so cognitively dissonant in the past is only growing more dissonant. And, and by that, I mean, on January 6th, you had Republican members of Congress challenge the electors from their own states, claim that the ballots which uh, elected Joe Biden were fraudulent when they were elected on the same ballot. And I do think that some of these Republicans, like Mitch McConnell, recognize this monster may consume them, too. That uh, if they're going to go along with the big lie, then that big lie can be used against them in their own election.
0: And I wonder if we can talk about where we are on the select committee. I think Representative Raskin has said there's kind of three circles of what is being investigated. Can can you just give us a brief kind of look at the, the map of what at this moment you're looking at? Is there some sort of analytic or descriptive way that you have people think about what is and what is not uh, in front of the select committee right now?
1: I can't go into the the kind of organizational structure of our investigative team, but what I can say is it became very apparent early on in our investigation that January 6th was really just one of multiple lines of effort to overturn the election. Uh, It was obviously uh, the most serious and the violent manifestation of the effort to overturn the election, but there were other very serious pernicious efforts as well. Efforts to, for example, bend the leadership of the Justice Department into the illicit purpose of trying to get Georgia not to send a slate of electors or to send an alternate slate to promulgate false claims of massive fraud. There were efforts through bogus litigation. There were efforts uh, to suborn state and local elections officials, the most prominent being the former president's effort to coerce the Secretary of State in Georgia to find 11,780 votes that didn't exist, but just the exact number of votes he needed to beat Joe Biden in that state. And so we are examining each of these lines of effort. The fake electors, the public reporting about the effort to potentially seize voting machines. And, And so a big part of our focus is on these multiple lines of effort to interfere for the first time in our country with the peaceful transfer of power. But other lines of inquiry are looking at those who participated in the attack. The white nationalist groups and whether there was any organization and coordination among these disparate groups where the funding came for uh, to finance January 6th, which took resources. What role the White House played, what role the Trump campaign played in all of these lines of effort, not just January 6th. And and as well, what role bigotry played? Because as we saw with the Confederate flags and the Auschwitz t-shirts on January 6th, this wasn't just a Trumpist insurrection, it was also a white nationalist insurrection. And we're looking at all these issues because our primary goal is to protect our country and our democracy going forward. And so we have to look at all the root causes as well as these multiple lines of effort.
0: And can I ask you, I'm just reflecting on that New York Times reporting from earlier in the week that the committee has taken a real page from sort of crim investigations, collecting metadata, flipping lower level, I think the word is not flipping, but let's call it flipping for right now, uh, lower level staffers, kind of likening this to a mob or white collar crime investigation. And I wonder how much it carries a risk of upping the kind of hardball tactics i'm thinking a, a little bit about some members of the house of representatives now saying that there were secret police breaking into their offices and you know looking at their whiteboards and that the more aggressively this is investigated the more it plays into this mythology of the you know deep state and its nefarious ways
1: first of all we have a very capable impressive team that we have assembled of staff and and former uh, assistant U.S. attorneys and people with investigative experience, and I may be biased because I'm a former assistant U.S. attorney, but they're very good lawyers and they're very good investigators. And because they have many of them have criminal experience, as I do, criminal law experience, there is that perception that we're running a, a you know criminal investigation. We're not running a criminal investigation. Uh, that's the purview of the Department of Justice. But nonetheless, knowing how to do an investigation, a complex white-collar investigation, which is what this really resembles, is a very useful skill uh, in knowing what records are useful, how to assimilate, where to go to for records, what witnesses we need to talk to, knowing how to sequence the witnesses. In terms of what critics are claiming are hardball tactics, actually, I think we have been very conservative uh, in our approach. We have worked fast. And we've you know, gone to the courts when we need to, and we've gone to the Justice Department when people have violated the law and been in contempt of Congress and have basically said they're above the law and they don't need to bother showing up. But on the, you know, I think the more difficult decisions, we are still weighing, for example, what to do about these members of Congress who are refusing to come in. But there's nothing unprecedented or even aggressive about asking members of Congress to testify. In the Russia investigation, we asked two members to come testify, and they both did. One Democrat, one Republican. Members are asked to testify often in ethics investigations. So uh, none of what we are doing is, I think, unprecedented. Okay. You're certainly hearing an unprecedented amount of complaining by the former president and his enablers because they don't like what we're finding. And, and so you're also hearing with the GOP and Ken McCarthy's pension for false equivalents, Well, if they're going to use these investigative tactics, then we're going to abuse any power we get if we take the majority, which, frankly, they will abuse their power if they're ever given the majority, regardless of what restraint we show today. But that's an argument not for us refusing to do our jobs and get to the ground truth of January 6th. It's an argument for making sure that Kevin McCarthy never becomes Speaker. Because, after all, one of the lines of effort to overturn the election was in Congress itself. And had Kevin McCarthy been speaker after the 2020 election, he would have overturned the election in the House, and we would have been in a complete constitutional crisis. So that, to me, is the takeaway, not that the January 6th committee should shy away from undertaking its responsibilities with diligence.
0: Can I ask one last question before we let you go? I know you're on the clock. I I think I need to end (laughs) asking you this. you have lived through the Mueller report, you have lived through two impeachments, and now this investigation. And part of me wonders what you think the end game is, insofar as a huge proportion of this country cannot be persuaded. And I don't think your job is to persuade them. I feel as though you are constructing a historic record. And you're doing something that lives in the interstices between politics and justice or that maybe sweeps both of those things up. But I guess I'm wondering how you think about each of these processes, which is not quite politics, not quite law, something to do with first drafts, hopefully not last drafts of history. And I guess I wonder... What your model is, like this doesn't feel like a last question. It feels like a dissertation. But when you think about what it is that you're doing that isn't quite any of the categories that, as a lawyer and as a congressman, you think about, where do you put this?
1: Yeah, no, that's a very interesting question. And actually, you know you, you began with a mention of of my book, Midnight in Washington. I did write that as a a first draft of this part of history with an eye towards history and and knowing that with respect to impeachments, they have been historically very rare. And there's great interest even today in the impeachment of Andrew Johnson a century and a half ago. But in terms of the work of the committee, I, uh, I guess I would come back to a view that I had during the first impeachment as we went to trial in the Senate. I would tell my fellow managers that we're we're speaking to the four and the 40 million. The four Republican senators we thought might have an open mind, and the 40 million Americans that we estimated also had an open mind. There are, you're right, a great many Americans who have a very closed mind Um, when it comes to January 6th or a lot of other things touching the political realm these days because the way we get our information is so balkanized. But there still are tens of millions of people who don't live, eat, and breathe uh, politics. They're just trying to get by and provide for their family. And they are hearing these conflicting narratives about January 6th. They're hearing it's legitimate political discourse, but then they're seeing images on TV of police being beaten and battered. And they're trying to reconcile, well, how could they possibly be saying it's legitimate political discourse? And it's important that we speak to those people. Uh, So I view that as a very important components of the the public hearings that we are going to begin, I think, in a matter of weeks or months. I view those hearings as speaking to the American people and sharing the, the, the facts we're learning in the investigation. I view the report as a document for history, and I view our responsibility as the recommendations that come out of that report to try to take steps to prevent anything like this from happening again. And so I think you're right. We are kind of At the intersection of history and justice, I would add accountability. Justice is predominantly the role of the Justice Department. But we're hopeful that our accountability can also lead to justice. Uh, And that's, I guess, how I would visualize, uh, envision our, our responsibility.
0: Congressman Adam Schiff represents California's 28th congressional district. He's in his 11th term in the House of Representatives, where he serves as chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. He was lead prosecutor on the first Donald Trump impeachment, and his book, Midnight in Washington, details his struggles through the Donald Trump era. Representative Schiff, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Great to be with you.
0: We are going to pause for a few moments to hear from some of our great sponsors, but when we come back, Professor Frenita Tolson is going to explain what the what just happened to voting rights on the Supreme Court's shadow docket.
1: Step into the world of power, loyalty
0: no purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So now we're going to turn to Merrill uh, V. Milligan. This is a voting rights case that is so seemingly complicated that, I don't know about you, but most of the media stories I read this week just tried to explain voting rights. This was a really crucial racial redistricting case under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Decided Monday night without... Much explanation on the court's shadow docket and if I have not lost you already with this introduction, I'm very relieved. But this is enormously consequential. And it sometimes gets obscured because it's buried under a statute and a redistricting order, and then again, under just a lack of any reasoning provided by the court. So thank God Fernita Tolson is here. Fernita is Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs and a professor of Law at University of Southern California, Gould School of Law and her scholarship and Teaching Focus on election law, con law, legal history, employment discrimination. Her research has been featured in leading law reviews around the country. And she has served as a contributor and issue expert for media sources. She's also testified before Congress a bunch of times on voting rights and authored a legal analysis for an amendment to the Constitution introduced by Senator Elizabeth Warren and Richard Durbin that would explicitly protect the right to vote. And that's really only about half of it. But, Franita, welcome to Amicus. Thank you. Very happy to be here. And I think... I wanna start by asking you to do the thing I feel like I really have been trying to do all week, which is just, please explain literally decades of redistricting law and the Constitution standing on one foot. Uh, I think I'm gonna give you this as a setup. On the one hand, the Voting Rights Act, uh, the doctrine, requires states to draw districts where minority voters can elect their preferred candidates under certain conditions but also a jurisdiction cannot make race, quote, the predominant factor in redistricting without some compelling reason to do so. And I just wanna sort of hand this to you with the caveat that Chief Justice John Roberts, dissenting from this week's order, described this case law as having, quote, engendered considerable disagreement and uncertainty regarding the nature and contours of vote dilution claims only to say to you, it feels as though everybody has a really vested interest in saying this is too complicated to understand. So it is not too complicated. Can you give us a quickie tutorial on this body of law about race and redistricting?
2: Um, So I agree completely. I do think that there's this sense after the decision that um, section two is so complicated, right? That we need to revisit it, but keep in mind, Lower courts have been doing Section 2 for decades, right? This is not something that's new. And in fact, the case itself, I would say, involved a pretty clear Section 2 violation. This is not something that you had the lower court just offhandedly say, okay, this is a Section 2 violation without putting in the due diligence. But let's take a step back. If you think about uh, Section 2, it's been in place since 1982, right? So that's almost 40 years of having this regime in which uh, states are required to draw districts in which African-Americans, Latinos, or any minority can be a majority in their own district, particularly if there is racially polarized voting, which means that the majority, or in most cases, white people vote for a different candidate than the ones minorities prefer. And so the idea is to put them in their own district so that they can elect their candidate of choice. So as long as they are geographically compact, courts have tended to find that Section 2 requires this. And this has been true since 1982. Now, let's be clear in some ways, and I want to make this point because I think the court is trying to get back here. Prior to the 1982 amendments to Section 2, there was a case called City of Mobile versus Bolden. In that case, which dealt with at-large elections, the question is whether or not having an at-large election where the entire governing body in Mobile was elected at large. Minorities were not able to elect their candidate of choice despite being 40 percent of the population of Mobile. There was a question there as to whether or not Section 2 was violated. The Supreme Court held that Section 2 required discriminatory intent. Discriminatory intent is really, really hard to prove. Right. So essentially, the plaintiffs would have to prove that the at-large structure was adopted for purposes of diluting the votes of minority voters. Very hard to prove that in many cases. So in 1982, Congress changed the law in order to make it easier for plaintiffs to win under Section 2. So you just have to show discriminatory effect. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about really the remedy to a section two violation. The remedy is to put minorities in their own district so that they can elect their candidate of choice. But you also have to show that the challenged rule or challenged plan has a discriminatory impact. Okay. So courts have been doing this. Um, we have developed doctrines around section two. This is not hard. Right. Like, um, and I think part of it is that a lot of conservative justices and judges disagree with Section 2. They disagree with the use of race and redistricting. Just because you disagree does not mean that the doctrine is hard or muddled or unclear. The doctrine is clear. That being said, doctors have developed to as really as a response to Section 2 claims. So as you mentioned in your opening remarks, this notion that, you know, they can't rely on rates too much in drawn districts. Some of that in a, in a line of cases, starting with Shaw versus Reno, is a response to states drawing majority minority districts in order to, in some cases, protect minority voters. But in, in some cases, states have drawn majority minority districts in order to harm minority voters. Right. So it's taken on a life of its own. But courts have become equipped at sort of distinguishing when majority minority districts are needed and when they're being used in order to pack minorities into districts and dilute their vote statewide. So Shaw versus Reno says, look, you cannot use race too much in drawing these districts. These districts have to be needed. And compliance with Section 2, i.e. Section 2 requires the state to draw this district, has long been a defense to a potential equal protection uh, claim under the Shaw line of cases. So to the argument, hey, state, you've used race too much, the state can say Section 2 requires this. But keep in mind the fact that we have this line of cases, Shaw versus Reno, under the Equal Protection Clause, i.e. you relied on race too much, shows you the disagreement with Section 2. This notion that we don't want states, you know, drawing these districts too much, particularly if they're not needed, because we don't like the idea of using race too much. So really, the Alabama case is a way to further undermine Section 2 because conservatives don't like it. They don't like statutes that, first of all, liability can be premised on effect. Think back to City of Mobile versus Bolden, right? This is why the Supreme Court said plaintiffs have to prove intent. Now, of course, that would limit the the number of Section 2 claims, the number of successful ones. It's very hard to prove. But at the same time, it also keeps the states from having too much liability in in terms of having to draw these majority-minority districts. So in some ways, the Alabama case brings all of these criticisms that we've seen since the early 1980s about Section 2 to a head. And I think what we're looking at is a world in which the Supreme Court, even Chief Justice Roberts, this is why he's saying, well, this is confusing. It's almost like a two sided coin, right? It's confusing, but the law is also settled, right? Such that there's a Section 2 violation here. Well, which is it? The lower court looked at the Alabama. Uh, Redistricting plan. They realized that there could be a second majority minority district drawn because, of course, keep in mind, I mean, under the new map, African-Americans are only, uh, what, 14 percent of the districts, despite being 27 percent of the population, i.e. red flag. Right. This is not hard. So I think the Chief Justice, even though he sided with the four liberals, wants it both ways. But he would prefer to not do it on the shadow docket, right? He wants the case to be fully briefed, argued on the merits, and then he'll probably vote with the conservatives to gut Section 2. Honestly, that's the world we live
0: in right now. First of all, that was— the best mini course on (laughs) racial redistricting law that I've ever had. And super clear because I think this is, as you say, doctrinally not complicated. It is cognitively complicated because, as you say, you've got this pincer move of uh, you can use race, but you can't use race too much. So it just seems as though this is insoluble. And yet, as you say, it's been solved for a very long time. I want to talk about Chief Justice Roberts, because I do feel that this goes to this sort of animating theme I have of John Roberts as a conservative, which is, you know, he's always saying lie better to me. Like, he really doesn't (laughs) like bad liars. He likes people who go through all the work and then present him with a good lie. And it feels like what he's working toward. And by the way, what he's worked toward for his entire career as a lawyer is eviscerating the Voting Rights Act, but doing it under the guise of, you know, we're doing this diligently and scrupulously under the law and not willy-nilly on the shadow docket, like with a, yeah, yeah, Justice Kagan, you know, stop talking about the shadow docket. I want to talk about Roberts, but I first also need you to do one other piece of teaching, which is the incredible Shrinking Voting Rights Act. Like, so we've talked on this show a lot about the demise of Shelby County and then Brnovich uh, just within the last year, whittling away at the use of Section 2, but not in the redistricting context. So this is actually something I, I feel like it would be useful for you to explain, which is Brnovich is kind of an outlier case because they were using Section 2 to try to resolve the problem of having Section 5 go away, right? So it was for just full-on vote-suppressive measures. This is actually the traditional use of Section 2, right? Typically, as you said, Section 2 was the, the piece of the Voting Rights Act that you leaned on when you wanted to solve this kind of vote dilution case, which is really different from what Bernovich did, right? I think we're coming full circle.
2: So Branovich involved uh, two Arizona voting laws, right? One that prohibited ballot collection by anyone other than election officials or a close family member, um, and another that required any ballots cast outside uh, the persons assigned precinct be disregarded. Um, And there was a disparate impact, right? This had a very negative effect on uh, minorities in Arizona, but the Supreme Court found that the laws did not violate Section 2. So let me make one point first, and it really goes to your point about the incredibly shrinking Voting Rights Act. Look where we are, right? So when the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, it was to address a lot of access issues, right? So just literacy tests, poll taxes, things of that nature that kept people from casting a ballot in the first instance. 1982, those amendments are exceptional because Section 2 was amended to address vote dilution claims. So not necessarily access, but just a sense of how districts are drawn and they could be drawn in a way that makes a, a voter's vote less powerful. Right? You can live in a place and if they draw your district wrong, then it doesn't really matter if you vote or not because you have no, no impact on the outcome of the election. So Section 2 was really designed to address these second-generation claims um, in 1982. But that does not mean that Section 2 was not also designed to still address first-generation claims. It's just that it had not really been u- used that way. So the, the claims that issue in Branovich, the, those type of laws that are being challenged, are really access issues, right? People are trying to vote in the first instance, and they can't because of these laws. So really, this is a full circle, right? We're coming back to a, a place where we still have to relitigate these access issues that were resolved in the 60s and 70s, which is really, really sad. So I invite you not to see Bronovich as necessarily an outlier, but part of this incredibly shrinking Voting Rights Act, right? Because... Even Shelby County, we focus a lot on Shelby County because it gutted Section 5. It's very upsetting, right? Just in case your listeners aren't entrenched in these issues like we are, Shelby County dealt with the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, and in particular, the preclearance provision, which... Require certain jurisdictions, mostly in the South, but also in other places, to preclear any changes to their voting laws before those laws go into effect. Um, it is really one of the most successful provisions of the Voting Rights Act, but I would even um, venture to say it's one of the most successful civil rights statutes in our country's history, because what it did is it, it fundamentally changed the political complexion of the South. Right. Like forcing them to, to pre-clear their changes meant that it was very difficult for any discriminatory laws to actually go into effect. Section two catches them on the back end. So they went into effect and now the government or plaintiffs can challenge them as violating section two. So section five, section four B and five together, section four B determined which jurisdictions were covered. Those two provisions together were really transformational because they caught it at the beginning before it could even impact minority groups. Shelby County, by invalidating the coverage formula, in part because the court argued that Congress had not built a record that was good enough to justify it, right? This idea that states control voter qualifications, states have primary authority over elections. If Congress wants to intrude, Congress needs to provide a justification. This is not good enough. And that's that's your boy, Chief Justice John Roberts. But keep in mind that Shelby County was not the beginning of this. I often read Shelby County, and I guess I like punishment because I've I continue to read it and get mad. It keeps me going. Um, but I, I think back to a case called uh, Bozier Parish. Um, and I did not know it was pronounced Bozier until I actually went there. <laughs> but it's a, a it's a city in Louisiana, and they passed a redistricting plan, but it was locally for local government. In that case, the Supreme Court held that section five only prohibited plans that were retrogressive, meaning that minorities have to be worse off under the new plan than they were under the old plan. But that plan was passed with discriminatory intent. So you mean to tell me that a governmental entity can intentionally discriminate against their minority residents and and that plan passes preclearance, right? That was in 2002. So that was what, 11 years before Shelby County. But it was like cases like that that started to give us some sense that the Voting Rights Act was in real trouble. Anytime a a governmental entity can pass an intentionally discriminatory plan. Now, of course, that doesn't insulate it from challenge under Section 2, right? And that was, the court's justification for viewing it that way. But the disconnect, especially if you understand what Section 5 was intended to do to prevent minorities from being harmed in the first instance, it was a bizarre reading of the statute to force this type of issue into Section 2 litigation, which honestly is very expensive. It takes a long time. And this is why Section 5 was in some ways better. OK, so Boja Parish, Shelby County, then we get to Bronovich, right? So Bronovich is interesting because what it does is I think it makes it very hard for plaintiffs to bring successful Section 2 challenges. So Bolger Parish, of course, started this, this process of pushing things to Section 2. And even in Shelby County, you get some sense that the court is like, well, there's are still Section 2. But then you get to Branovich and Bronovic is like, well, let me tell you, this section two is a problem. Now, what does Alito do? Alito wrote Bronovich, and, and it's really interesting the way he rewrites the statute. And there's no other way to frame it. It's a rewriting of the statute, right? So you have the two Arizona laws. They clearly have a disproportionate impact on minority groups. Um, but he says it's not big enough. And not only is it not big enough, he says, like, look, you have to look at the opportunities provided by the state's entire political system. So, yeah, you know, these two laws might have some impact, but, you know, there are other ways to vote. You can show up on Election Day. You can vote absentee. You can do all of these different things. You can vote early. Right. And we need to consider that and thinking through whether or not there's a, a Section 2 violation. Get this. To what extent does the new rule depart from the standard practice when Section 2 is amended? Well, what does that mean? That means that as long as the state has in-person voting on Election Day, the court is less likely to find that there's a Section 2 violation because literally that's all the state has to do. Huh? How do you, so how do you build a political system that is inclusive and reflective of where we are as a society, right? To some extent, the innovations that we've seen are a reflection of where we are as a society. Election Day is not a holiday. So keep in mind, early voting is key for a lot of people to be able to participate. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. So absentee voting has become very, very important. What Alito has basically done is validated a state's ability to make some methods of voting harder, particularly those methods that people of color tend to rely on. In 2020, people of color disproportionately used absentee voting relative to white voters. Under Branovich, that is not a Section 2 violation, right? Because Alito would just say, look, vote in person. (laughs) So in some ways, the decision is, is a way of insulating certain categories of voting laws from ever being challenged under Section 2. I've pointed to three decisions over the course of 20 years that shows this slow death of the Voting Rights Act. And this Alabama case has to be read in that context. It really is part of this sort of longish history of the court slowly but surely gutting uh, various provisions of the Voting Rights Act.
0: Fernita, before we turn to the way this particular decision came down, and again— thank you for the clinic, because I just think like this seems so technical, but it's actually like anybody can understand it when you explain it the way you just explained it. But I also just want to go back and loop in one thing you said about the difference between these cases that challenge access and the cases that try to challenge redistricting and vote suppression through redistricting because I'm aware of a conversation we had with Cheryl and Eiffel where she was saying that her principal complaint about the shadow docket and the ways in which the Supreme Court just wipes away a district court order is that all of those findings of fact Everything that was done by litigators to build a case, to make visible, not just to the justices, but to the American people, what the burden is on uh, racial minorities, that gets wiped away, too. It's literally gone.
2: We have to explain to our clients, right, why a 192-page decision from a district court judge in Alabama, in which our clients make this powerful testimony about why they can't comply with. Alabama's absentee voting law that requires them to engage with all these people during the COVID pandemic, and they are Black people who have particular disabilities, why that gets wiped out, why it doesn't exist anymore, why there could be a decision that quoted them saying, my ancestors had to risk their lives to vote. I I don't think we should have to do that anymore. It's quoted, right? But we have to explain what happened to that thing. It's just gone.
0: And the reason It really stuck with me, and I've never stopped thinking about that, is that is an immense amount of erasure of actual lives, of an actual record. Redistricting is so freaking hard because it feels like it's a a formula on a computer. And you just don't have, correct me if I'm wrong, that kind of, you know, here is a person who stood in line for 17 hours and, you know, uh, couldn't get uh, their uh, records from the DMV. It just doesn't have that kind of human sense that she was trying to paint. And I think part of when I opened with redistricting is really tricky. It's just that it can be so bloodless. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, definitely. For some reason as you were speaking, one thing that kept coming to mind is that the cruelty is the point. And I don't and it seems weird to describe it that way, but I actually think it it fits here a little bit. So, during the Trump administration, there were a number of things that happened and I just didn't quite understand it. Hawaii versus Trump, which challenged the travel ban. and there were various iterations of the travel ban. And I remember sort of reading those decisions and and thinking in my head, like, why are they going through all of this trouble, right? There are ways to do immigration policy that make more sense. And the cruelty is the point. And I think that this is similar, if you think about it, like this idea that the Supreme Court can swoop in and erase all of the work that voting rights advocacy groups, plaintiffs, Um, People who are invested, right, people who understand this history where, you know, African-Americans and other minorities, people with disabilities, uh, language minorities, all these groups have been negatively impacted by voting laws throughout our history. They understand that history. And so they're definitely coming to this with a lens of, you know, trying to fight. But part of it is taking the fight away. I know we hate to, to say it that way, but to me, that's the only way to explain what is our clear inconsistencies in the court, right, in this space versus other spaces. Because I'm sure if you compare what the uh, court has done in the context of the Alabama case with what the court did in the context of the Texas abortion law, right, we can have an entire conversation about the inconsistencies in which the court has approached these issues, But that being said, I think to some extent, the cruelty is the point. And I might sound extra saying that, but part of this is to deter these types of lawsuits from being brought. There's no other way to explain it. Branovich, you know, his new five-part test that he developed to try to rewrite Section 2. Makes it harder to win. The Alabama case, you have these lawyers, these amazing lawyers who put all of this work in. You had these this panel, of ju- these are not radical judges, right? Two Trump appointees found the Section 2 violation, right? So they did their job, right? They showed up, they understood the assignment. Supreme Court comes in and one order wipes it out. To some extent, we have to acknowledge the cruelty is the point. This is about deterrence. It's not just about getting to a certain endpoint. The endpoint is important. The endpoint is the complete validation of the Voting Rights Act. They want to neuter the statute. We know that. But they also want to deter these groups from bringing this type of litigation, because otherwise, why not wait for full briefing and argument? So maybe an unpopular position, but I said what I said. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, it's, it's hard to see it through any other lens. And I guess I would just marry your answer to my question, which is it's not just that the cruelty is the point, it's that the bloodless cruelty is the point. That if you can't tell this story <laughs> in a way that folks can understand, then it's a kind of a cherry on top of the Sunday of cruelty, if that's a thing, which is just, you know, we've made it so arcane that maybe nobody will, you know, react, and I and I really like what you're saying because I don't think it's over the top to suggest that there are a thousand ways to do these cases. You had a three judge panel that did it, and I want to say the numbers again. You said it in your very first answer, but I I, I feel like this is phenomenally important. In the state of Alabama, you have seven congressional districts, population 27 percent black. The state of Alabama produces a map that packs some va- black voters into one district, spreads everyone else out into three districts, managing to ensure that while black Americans make up 27 percent of the state's population, they will control 14 percent of the congressional delegation. This is not A hard case. As you said, it goes to this three-judge special panel, as you said, two Trump appointees who do their job and find exactly the thing that you just said, which is, hey, this map violates the Voting Rights Act. Am I missing anything in terms of setting the table before we get to the order itself? So one thing
2: that I think is worth mentioning, in some ways, the litigation over the last decade shows how the original Voting Rights Act actually didn't go far enough. One interesting tidbit, I think Rick Pildes wrote a great blog post about this on election law blog recently, where he talked about the fact that Section 5 wouldn't have blocked Alabama's plan, right? So you you have these disparities, right? Black people are 27%, but they only get 14% of the districts. Under the original plan, the one from 2010, they only were required to draw one district, but the population has grown where they can now fit into. So Section 5 actually wouldn't have blocked that plan. And so in my mind, that tells me that okay, in terms of our political system, we're in a different place now, right? Just in terms of like the, the barriers that African-Americans and other minority groups face, the way that we conceive of effective political power in these states has changed, but we're still sort of litigating under provisions that haven't really changed that much. And that's part of the problem too. So not only am i like, oh my God, the Supreme Court is invalidating the Voting Rights Act. And a part of me is also like the Voting Rights Act didn't even go far enough, right? So if we lose the little bit we have, we're going to be even worse off than we would have been otherwise, right? Like, the situation is actually more dire than we realize because the original Voting Rights Act didn't go far enough in protecting minority communities. That was a very startling realization to me. I'm like, oh my God, we we can't even get what we need. For decades, we've been trying to preserve what we have, and now we're losing that. So what does that mean for the road
0: forward? That's another way of saying the thing that I think you led with, which is adding Section 2 to the existing Voting Rights Act isn't because it's working. (laughs) It's because, right, it's not working. And then to say we're going to get rid of Section 5 with the promise that you always can go back to Section 2 and then you wipe out Section 2, it has this illusion that, like, oh, there's just so much law here. Like, you've got (laughs) double the protection you had. And it's, in fact, no, we added to the law because it wasn't enough to begin with.
2: And these voting rights advocacy groups and these litigators have been working with the bare minimum. Literally, I call them superheroes. They are superheroes because they have been doing a lot with the least.
0: We are going to pause now to hear from one of our great sponsors on this week's show. Let's talk about the order on Monday. And I would love to chat with you at length about all of the careful doctrine that the court lays out, but it Isn't there? We do have a concurrence written by Brett Kavanaugh, signed by Samuel Alito, taking some potshots uh, at the dissenters, but not really a very clear sense of what happened to Section 2. So one thing
2: Justice Kavanaugh said that I thought was really, really interesting here is that, uh, yes, the plaintiffs might win, but so might Alabama. Huh? Right? That means that you leave the order in place that does not mean that Alabama has met its burden to justify overturning the district court's order. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting from that perspective because it seems that in the context of whether or not there should be a stay, <laughs> uh, Kavanaugh doesn't seem to understand the standard. But I do think that, and I would encourage your, your listeners not to think about this as being about law. It's not about law. Um, and you also can't, Think about the court's rationale as legitimate or justified. And that's the difficulty with it, right? Because think about this as precedent. It shouldn't be, right? This is a shadow docket. It's an order. Um, this is not something that we think about as a roadmap for the, the path forward. But given that the court didn't really provide good reasoning, how should we think about that in future voting rights cases? The last thing I would want to be in this moment is someone litigating a voting rights case. And unfortunately, I'm working on, or fortunately, I'm working on several. <laughs> that, But one of the reasons why the Alabama case is so scary is because of the lack of, authenticity is one way to think about it. Like, I don't want to say that the court is being inauthentic, but there's a sense of inauthenticity. But also the fact that they have muddied the waters in terms of the path forward, because this particular case, um, so it's going to be set for argument, either this term or maybe early next term. So it could be a while before we have a clear sense of, Uh, what the world of Section 2 actually looks like. And I think that's scary for some people who are working in this space, right? How do you litigate cases going on now? Because you have voter suppressive laws in Georgia being challenged, Texas, Florida, right? So there's active Section 2 litigation going on. And I really think the the question after the Alabama case is to what extent has the court muddied the waters um, in those cases, right? Because all of a sudden, um, just because the Alabama case dealt with redistricting, there's still the question of how much this bleeds over into other types of Section 2 litigation, because Section 2 deals with both vote dilution and vote denial, right? If the Section 2 is as complicated and as messy and as confusing as even Chief Justice Roberts claims, then how does that impact the views of lower court judges who are overseeing Section 2 cases, right? How does that um, influence their decision-making? So there are just so many Um, unanswered questions coming out of what, in in essence, is a very short order, because it has so much confusion about the the law in this area and the overall status of Section 2.
0: It it slightly um, harkens back to your point, which is once you set out a quote-unquote rule that essentially says, we're not telling you the rule— what you're doing is chilling anybody from coming back. And that's part of the point. I've just talked about how Justice Kavanaugh in, you know, it is not an opinion, it's a concurrence. We don't actually have any kind of law. And then he immediately gets the burden of proof wrong, as you just said, and seems to think the plaintiffs have this super high burden. And, and uh, Justice Kagan checks him on that in her dissent. But the other, I guess the only other operative legal theory here that we have to get to is this Purcell principle, right? Oh, my God. And I wish listeners could see your face just now because you just (laughs) did one of those, I know, faces. But, like, the Purcell principle is judge-made law. It's not in the Constitution. It is uh, a kind of a convenience slash administrative rule that used to hold that – Courts shouldn't tinker with election law on the eve of election because it causes voter confusion. That's not how Purcell is used by Justice Kavanaugh.
2: No. So not only is he wrong about Purcell, and I'm going to get to that, I want to, just for for the record, I have to to say this line from his concurrence because every time I read it, it pisses me off. He says, the principal dissents catchy but worn out rhetoric about the shadow docket is similarly off target. Now they're trying to be dismissive about that, right? So what does that mean? That means that there will be a lot more opinions like Merrill versus Milligan making very consequential decisions in the context of important issues without full briefing and argument. I just want to memorialize that because I do think this is the way of the court trying to minimize the importance of the fact that they are making these decisions without full briefing and argument. That just really makes me mad. Uh, but the second thing is the per sale principle, the court has really weaponized that. And to some extent, we saw that in 2020, right, where states were trying to respond to the pandemic and state courts were coming in and saying, look, we interpret our state constitution to require, for example, that the state a lot more time to receive absentee ballots. Supreme Court comes in and says per sale principle, right? You cannot change the election rules so close to an, an election because it generates confusion. Okay, you know, I am of the opinion that you have to also think about the right to vote, right, that the Purcell principle cannot trump the fundamental right to vote. And um, in that particular case I was referring to, this was Wisconsin, a very beginning of the pandemic. The state court was trying to really accommodate the fact that, one, you know, long lines, social distancing, a lot of people are not going to vote in person. Th- therefore, voting absentee becomes very important. A lot of people had not received their absentee ballot by the deadline. Um, and so, the you know, you can sort of justify the extension if you think about the right to vote as fundamental and trying to accommodate these voters in a pandemic. Court comes in and says it's too close to the election. OK, fine. I'll even give them that. I'll even give them Purcell, right? Purcell, the Ninth Circuit, enjoined Arizona's voter ID law a month before the election. Court says too close to the election. The election is in nine months. In the Alabama case, the election is in nine months. Somebody please explain to me what Purcell has to do with this, right? This is not too close to the election. The uh, plaintiffs in this case filed a day after the new map passed. This is not a situation in which there was a delay, right? The, the plaintiffs did everything that they were supposed to do in terms of the timeline. The judges did, right? This case was expedited. It went very, very fast. Um, and we're still nine months out from the election. So please, someone please explain to me how Purcell is even a concern here. And this is what I mean when I say that the court has weaponized it, right? It has become this excuse to allow states to have wide discretion over the election apparatus, even if it's to the detriment of voters, that's really the function of sale now. It's not really a concern about chaos. And, you know, I'll concede there are legitimate concerns about changing rules. And there's always this concern when you have litigation over drawn districts and, you know, you get closer to the election, people don't know which district they're in. We saw this in the context of voter ID, right? You know, extensive litigation, voters have questions about what kind of ID can I bring? You know, what are the rules? Can I use an affidavit? Like, Yes, litigation can generate that type of confusion. This situation is not it. So to some extent, Purcell has become an excuse to just defer to the state. It's a way of trying to minimize voting protections in the name of state sovereignty. So Purcell, in my opinion, is best understood as now a a component of federalism as opposed to an election administration rule. And so what I mean by that is just another way of protecting the authority that states have over elections as against intrusion from the federal government. Here, the federal government is operating technically through Section 2. This is a federal statute. The court is saying we are not going to let federal law intrude on this authority. So Purcell, in some ways, is best thought of now as a federalism protection tool, as opposed to a doctrine that's centered in any concern about election chaos. And
0: and I think it's fair to pull on that one more notch into the grim recognition in a lot of election um, voting rights commenters said this if if you can use Purcell this way when, as you said, you're nine mm-hmm. months out from an election, then every state under the, you know, flag of federalism has one free mm-hmm. shot to just yeah. do whatever the heck they want to do and hope it doesn't catch up with them before the election. And in some sense, it really gives you a whack at the pinata to do whatever kind of mischief that is presumably forbidden. And you'll always win, right? Because there's always an election
2: coming. Yeah, well, that was also true with the invalidation of Section 5, right? It's essentially the invalidation of Section 5 in a lot of cases gave states a free pass until somebody sued under Section 2. And so I think that in the court's view, this is preferable. This is also why the court is hostile to facial challenges in the context of election law. It's really, really hard for a plaintiff to challenge a law that has been passed but has not went into effect yet, right? Because uh, to some extent, it's the standard, right? It has to be invalid in all its applications. But it's also just this sense by the court that states need room to be innovative in this space, but not like innovative in the positive sense, like innovative in the discriminatory actor sense, <laughs>
0: What is the best way of discriminating against minority voters? Let's try a few things. I mean, we call them the laboratories of democracy. <laughs> Let's um I want to give you a chance cuz you you put a pin in this right up at the top, but there is a really bad hot take, which is, oh, this was 5-4 and Chief Justice Roberts voted with the liberals, that leads people to think that maybe Chief Justice Roberts, again, who has dedicated his career to ending the Voting Rights Act, um, is somehow a fan of the Voting Rights Act. And I want you to be really clear, just in response to, to this last question, Chief Justice Roberts just doesn't like the unseemliness here.
2: Oh, yeah. He's an institutionalist. And so he cares about the perception that the court has among the general public, among the legal community. Right. So he he would prefer to be orderly about this, you know, that there is some procedure in place. But trust and believe that when this is argued and briefed and the opinion comes out, it'll probably be 6-3. I don't think that's necessarily inconsistent with what he says in Merrill. Right. Like he's clear that the, the whole line about the Section 2 being complicated and confusing gives you some insight into where he would land if the case is is fully briefed on the merits. Part of it is hope, right? Uh, <laughs> people, I, I think they want to have some some hope that, you know, maybe it'll survive, right? Maybe there's some chance we can peel off robbers um, when this case is heard on the merits. But um, it's unlikely. As you mentioned, he spent his career hating the Voting Rights Act, right? It's not a surprise that he wrote Shelby County. When he was in a DOJ, um, he wrote memos against the Voting Rights Act. He's in an abusive relationship with the Voting Rights Act, right? This is is 40 plus years of him trying to defeat this statute. Um, it reminds me of, Andrew Jackson's relationship with the Bank of the United States, like he, this two-headed monster that, that he had to defeat, right? <laughs> That's Chief Justice Roberts and the Voting Rights Act, and nothing will change that.
0: Fernita had a much more lowbrow analogy, which was my big brother, Alex, who, when a bully, when I was two, rolled a, a rock down the slide at me. And Alex said, no, she's my sister. Only I can roll rocks down the slide at her. Um, So that feels like it's where Chief Justice Roberts is. Before I say goodbye, I need you to say, because you told me before we started taping, that you are still um, toting around Big Hope. And this has not been like the hopiest of uh, conversations. And I wonder if you could just give listeners who I think now probably understand the enormity of what just happened and how consequential it is. This was not a technical matter. Um, what it is that um, nevertheless is carrying you along the current of hopiness.
2: So t- I'm a, I'm going to be highbrow and then I'll be a little granular. Highbrow, my ancestors were enslaved. Like, this is not my situation. So <laughs> I think about that, you know, and I'm like, I, I can do this work, right? Black people have been fighting a fight in this country for 400 years. We, we can do this. Because think about what we achieved, right? Like in a sense of, you know, coming out of slavery in 1865, a whole hundred years later, you get the Voting Rights Act. It took a long time. A lot of people died doing it, but they kept trying. Right. So to be more granular, there is a great profile of a man named Jackson Giles in the local Montgomery newspaper. And he was head of the, the Colored Men's Suffrage Association. And he sued the state of Alabama when they changed their state constitution to disenfranchise black people. And he sued twice. Not only did he put his life at risk once to challenge it and lost, in an opinion written by Justice Holmes, but he did it again um, and he lost again. But the point is he kept trying and he did so as a significant threat to his life. And for some people who were involved in this fight, there was always this threat of death, right? At least now we get to do this work. And and yes, it, it's I don't mean to it's hard, um, it's disappointing, it's sad, but we we we're doing it under much better circumstances than the people who came before us did, and that means a lot to me. And so, first of all, I just try not to disrespect the ancestors by losing hope because they never did, and it was in far worse circumstances. The second thing is that America will always be a democracy in progress, right? It's always a work in progress. So what that means is that there will be fits and starts. We will have moments where things are great. Like I think about the Warren Court era as like the high water mark where you had. All of these decisions that brought us closer to being an inclusive democracy, it was like this partnership between the court and Congress and, you know, the Congress passing the Voting Rights Act and the the Civil Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act. And then the court coming in and saying, we got your back. And they're, they're doing all of these decisions to sort of bolster this view of America as a melting pot, really, and not just this predominantly white male entity that had existed for two centuries, right? All of a sudden this vision that people can really get behind. And so of course there'll be backlash. There's always backlash to progress. We saw that with reconstruction, then there's backlash, but people kept fighting. And so the people in between like these moments where we really shine, we're just in a moment in between, right? We had a high water mark, and now there's the backlash, but we'll get there again. It's just going to take time, right? So- This is what keeps me focused. That doesn't mean like I'm not like significantly pissed off. The fact that we have to relitigate all of these things that should have been resolved, right? The fact that we we can no longer coalesce behind this broad vision that racial discrimination is bad. And even more importantly, racial discrimination in voting is bad too, right? The fact that minorities should have political power in this country and be able to articulate their policy preferences and that, you know, white people shouldn't feel threatened by that and that elected officials should actually have policy positions and not try to insulate themselves from competition and so on, right? Like, You know, I'm really mad that I have to keep having this conversation. But you know what? I'm going to keep doing it because the people who came before me, I'm sure they got tired. I'm sure they got frustrated. I'm sure they got pissed too. But they kept going. So we keep going.
0: Fernita Tolson is Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs and Professor of Law at University of Southern California, Gould School of Law. Her scholarship and teaching focus on election law, constitutional law, legal history, and employment discrimination. Her research has been featured in so many, so many places, and she has testified before Congress multiple times on voting rights. She might also be the first person to use the word pissed off twice in one interview but whole three times she's telling me um but holy cow so 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 phenomenally phenomenally helpful in really untangling something that i think both is abstract and it's also oh my god it's the water we swim in every day thank you fernita i know this took a lot of your time but we're so grateful thank you for having me this was awesome That is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you, as always, for listening in, and thank you so much for your letters and your notes and your questions. You can keep in touch at amicus at slate.com. You can always find us at facebook.com/slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer, and June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts and we'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks.